Well, that was a cheery reading, wasn't it? I mean, it's not your fault, Anna. It was nicely read, but... Um, well, yeah, it's great to have you with us. And so we, uh, as a church, and if you're new, uh, let me just uh, reiterate the welcome to you and say that when it's a week like this where there's so many new people, um, we wish we could come and greet each of you and say hello, and we hope we get a chance to. So please do, uh, if you're willing to be bold, stick around for the uh, the picnic afterwards. So yeah, I, I imagine when we hear those words, there's all sorts of different reactions which we feel. Um, and you might have noticed that we picked some different little chunks of that first chapter of the book of Romans. And that was actually very deliberate. It's not because uh, I'm dodging other parts of the chapter. The very opposite, in fact. Romans 1, actually almost the entire book of Romans, is one big argument. It's one big idea. And so if we were to take the whole thing in one go, um, we could do that. It would just require one like five hour long sermon, which would be really fun for me and probably less so for you. Um, so what we've done is I'm dividing up this first chapter. We're going to spend the next three weeks, including this week, just on that first chapter. And, and, and what we read probably didn't sound super um, encouraging. It probably didn't sound uh, like something you were really excited to talk about. And when I go on and say we're going to spend the next three weeks in Romans 1, that might not sound like a really great fun time on Sunday mornings, especially when I said we're going to talk about the nature of divine wrath this week, the extent of divine wrath the next week, and sexuality the week after. So we're just really trying to avoid the hot topics as a church. But why is it that when we say that, when we hear that word, God's wrath, so many of us will have a visceral uh, reaction. I, I want to suggest to you that it's because we have a deeply malformed understanding of what God's wrath is. Most of us, I suspect, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe I don't know you, many of you yet, have inherited a view of God's wrath that is utterly distorted and is not like the view of the Bible. I remember at one time, I... I remember very distinctly praying to God and saying, God, please, please don't give me what I deserve. And what I was afraid of is that bad things are going to happen in my life. That the things I longed to have, the person I longed to be, would be stripped from me. Because I had somehow disappointed God or broken his law. And he was waiting to pour out his wrath to send bad things my way because of what I had done. I was speaking to someone just a couple weeks ago at a cafe in St. Andrews who was going through an absolute, just heart-rending, horrendous season, and who had come to meet with me to ask me if I could help her discern what she had done, which made her deserve, merit, this outpouring of God's judgment, of his punishment, of his wrath. That way of thinking about what God's wrath is, it's bad things he sends our way when we have sinned, doesn't fit in the slightest with what Paul describes in this chapter. Look at what we read at the beginning. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. If that way of thinking about God's wrath was right, it would make sense to say the wrath of God is sometimes revealed or the wrath of God is occasionally revealed. Sometimes we look and we see something really bad and then we know God's really angry. But that's not what 
Paul says. He doesn't say sometimes or on occasion or in very bad moments God's wrath is revealed. It's, it's saying it is continually, ongoingly, it's always evident. It's there for anyone who knows how to see it. See, when you think that God's wrath is the bad things he sends your way when you make a mistake, you end up not only having a very distorted view of God and self. Back in that time I was describing when I thought of God that way, I not only thought that God was constantly out to get me, I usually had this vague, underlying, irrepressible sense that God was disappointed in me, that he was wishing that I was just a bit better. And in my experience, most of us, whether we believe in God or not, have that same sense. But when you have that view of judgment as the bad things God does when he's mad at certain people, you also end up, I think, not only having a bad view of God and self, but acting deeply immorally and unjustly to others. Let me show you what I mean. A number of years ago on September 11th, there was a horrible tragedy in the US with echoes that reverberated around the world, a terrorist attack, which I don't need to tell you about. But after that event, there was two groups of religious people, two groups of Christians who began saying, began saying they could explain why this happened. They said, this act is an act of divine judgment. He is punishing certain things about the nation of America. And they came from two very different social and political groups. One of these groups says, the reason this happened to us is because God is angry about the sort of um, approach to sexuality which has taken root in America. This horrible tragedy is God's wrath, his punishment for the sexual promiscuity of this nation. Whereas, at the same time, another group of people says, no, we know why this happened. We know what God is up to. This event is God's punishment, his wrath, his outpouring of judgment upon the American foreign policy project. It is his judgment of our imperialism and our desire to impose our way on the nations. So I want you to just guess I want you to just guess these two different groups that had two totally different explanations about what God was judging in this event. The group that said this is about sexuality. Would you guess, you don't have to say it out loud, that this group was liberal or conservative? And the group that said that this is God's judgment upon our nation's imperialistic foreign policy, would you guess that they were on the left or the right? You don't even need me to tell you the answer, do you? We all know. We all know that the conservatives says, if something bad happens, it must be God judging our ideological, social, political enemies. And the liberals said, with the exact same bad thing, this must be God judging our social, ideological, and political enemies. When you think that the bad things that happen are God punishing someone for what they've done, you will inevitably misunderstand what the nature of that judgment is and use it as an opportunity to project, to say that God is judging the people that I don't like or I don't agree with or I'm concerned with. Jesus had an utterly different approach. We don't, we've never heard an explanation of Jesus from the Twin Towers, but there was another tower that fell. It was called the Tower of Siloam. 
And everyone was doing the exact same thing. All the people were gathering around and were saying, why did this happen? Who's guilty? Who's at fault? Who's God's punishing? And Jesus' response was to say, do you think that these people who died in this tragedy were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Jesus tells, has multiple interactions making the same point. Someone says, so a man was born blind, and there's an argument going on. Who's being punished? Is it this man? Or was it his parents? Or was it someone else? And again, Jesus makes the same point. You fundamentally misunderstood how God's wrath works. It's not some sort of firebolt coming from heaven, falling upon those who have been naughty. So what is it? Why does Paul say it's not something that is sometimes revealed in random tragedies? It's something that is always being revealed if you know where to see it. Well, this is how he describes it. Three different times throughout this passage, he wants to make sure we don't miss it. God gave them up to the sinful desires of their hearts. God gave them over to lust. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a depraved mind. It's the same word every time. It's God giving people what they want, their desires or their lust or what their mind is fixated upon. It's not saying that humans are robots, that God's forcing them to do it. It's evident because in other parts of the Bible, it says, using the exact same word, they've given themselves up to the same sort of thing. But what Paul's saying is, if if you want to know if the world is under God's judgment, if you want to know why it's evident all the time, unceasingly, that God is displeased with the way the world is going, you don't look for bad, tragic events happening randomly. You look to what we're doing to ourselves. You look to God giving people what they want and the consequences which fall upon them from their own choices. This, for Paul, is the heart of the wrath of God. A theologian uh, I really like says it this way. God's judgment is God simply letting the world go, allowing the world to pour, pull down the house on itself. God's wrath spoken of with such zeal and torment in Scripture is terrible, precisely because God doesn't restrain our zeal to wreck the world. Here, God lets the world be what it wants to be. Now, wait a minute. You might think, then why, when I read the Old Testament, does it look like sometimes God's wrath is him sending a big firebolt on some people? Why, sometimes, does it look like it's not just him giving people the consequences of their own actions, but him sending a giant flood? That sounds like it's a big bad thing that's sent to punish people for doing something naughty. Well, it's a good question. I wish I could go into all the examples because when you actually look at the way the Bible interprets those events, it's not doing that at all. But let's just take the example of the flood. Why did God send the flood? And that's what it's meant to teach us. When you look at the way that we're meant to read the Bible, the best way to learn how to read the Bible is to learn how the authors of the Bible Read it. So look at the New Testament and learn how it reads the Old Testament. And when people like Paul read Old Testament stories, they think that these are oftentimes historical events, but these historical events are pointing to deeper spiritual realities. So Paul talks about how Abraham and Sarah and Hagar are all showing these the deeper nature of our lives today, of what it means to be human and to relate to God. And whenever you read 
about creation in the Bible. And there's a bunch of, of stories of narratives of creation. Genesis is the most famous one, but there's narratives in, in, in Proverbs, there's narratives in Psalms, there's narratives in Job. It describes creation really interestingly. Every single time, there's water. And God divides the water to make space for humans. Creation is described poetically as God pushing back the forces of chaos. If you know what water is in the ancient person's mind, it's not just literally the watery wet stuff. It's symbolic or representative of the world as a, a mass of without order, without meaning, without purpose, without love, without flourishing, of chaotic forces with no meaning or purpose or organization. And so when God creates, it's always presented as him restraining the chaos and creating a space of order where there's harmony, there's respect, where humans treat one another with dignity, where they treat the earth as it should be treated, where things are as they're made to be. And so the flood is a picture of what happens when humans reject that order, when they choose to, instead of treating one another with, with dignity, to use them. And, and the story of Genesis says the hearts of men became violent without ceasing. They, became, they, they rejected that ordering and this image of God ceasing to hold back the waters is an image precisely of him letting us reap the chaos we have chosen. It's a grand image of precisely what Paul is talking about, of God giving people over to their self-willed destruction. How does this happen? This is the other, I think, remarkable thing about Romans 1. What Romans 1, it sounds uh, very intense, and the reason is because it will not let you think that, oh, Paul's talking about someone else. Paul's talking about some unrepentant baddies. What Paul does instead is he says, how does this happen? Why would someone choose destruction rather than life? Why would they choose chaos rather than a harmonious order? Why would they choose, as John Webster said, to pull the house down on themselves? And what he does is he sort of gives a story of how that happens. He gives us a kind of moral psychology, a description of how a human being can slowly descend into a sort of moral madness where they choose self-destruction rather than life. Notice every, uh, again, what, what recurs on three occasions in this passage is that what Paul sees as the heart of choosing this chaotic way of self-destruction is to suppress the truth, to turn away from reality. They suppress the truth by their wickedness. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. Their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. He's saying things start by a refusal to recognize the way things are the truth of reality, and to begin buying lies which promise you life and lead to death. He's saying when God set up that order, he said, this is how you'll find life. This is how you'll treat others with dignity. This is the truth, the true moral nature of this world. And when we choose destruction, we begin to reject that order and to think that things that lead to death might give us something else. Let me give you a few examples of this because I know that sounds abstract. Has anyone ever seen this show? Yeah, 
Breaking, Breaking Bad, the Amer- multi, you know, very celebrated American television series. Breaking Bad is uh, a, just an incredibly well-crafted television program. But if anyone of you that have seen it, you can probably tell everyone, the first three episodes are the most boring episodes of any television show you've ever seen. And that's part of the point. Because Breaking Bad ends up being the story of a man who basically runs a cartel and deals meth and has his enemies killed. But it starts out with the most mild-mannered, boring, uh, passive, weak father and school teacher you can imagine. The first few episodes present someone that is so normal, so mild, and so passive that it's, it's almost boring. The only thing he cares about is providing for his family and having just the smallest bit of self-respect. And yet the whole multi-series show, which goes on for on and on and on, shows how those simple, very good, very basic human desires, when he pursues them relentlessly, leads him to become an utterly different sort of person. And it starts through believing very small lies. First, he believes that perhaps I'll have to break some of my moral uh, standards if it means providing for my family. Later, he believes that perhaps it's not so bad to be making drugs because someone else would be making them anyways and I can do it in a safer, more ethical way than they could. Later, he thinks that maybe sometimes it's okay if someone is crushed, if it's for the greater good. And lie after lie, self-justification after self-justification, someone who started out as a morally upright, upstanding person becomes something utterly different because they've left the path of truth. This, I would suggest to you, is how it works out to some degree or other in all of our lives. And let me give you one more example. This might hit a little bit closer to home because while I'm sure there's all sorts of issues we're all dealing with, my guess is most of you aren't meth dealers. Um, I don't want to judge. It's possible. Um, Let's talk about wealth. How many of you, and I don't want you to raise your hand because I know one of you cheeky people are going to ruin this analogy by, you know, being cheeky. But how many, don't, just keep your hands down. Um, Know someone who self-expresses, just admits, I am greedy and my life is too extravagant. Now, maybe you guys know some really weird people that do that, but I've never known anyone like that. And I have some wealthy friends. I've never known anyone that would straight up admit I am a greedy person and my lifestyle is so extravagant that it's wrong. So is anyone greedy? How does it happen? We know how it happens, don't we? You begin to live in an alternate reality to deny the truth. Everyone, every one of us, no matter how much money you have, knows people that are far, far, far more wealthy than you. Knows people's lifestyles who are far, far, far more extravagant than you. Some of you might recognize this. I wasn't even really aware this existed. This is one of the super yachts that was uh, impounded, that was taken under the custody of the EU recently. That, you know, we've heard about these, these yachts that cost, like, some of these cost like 50 million pounds for one boat. 
It's madness. But we all know someone, therefore, no matter what, what line of work you, 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 you're in, that is richer than you. And so if you start comparing yourself to them, if you start saying this is normal, you can justify anything. You can say, sure, I go on nice holidays, but they're nowhere near as nice as his. Sure, I have a nice car, but it's nothing like hers. You start reshaping what is normal, reshaping what is acceptable, reshaping what is extravagant and what isn't. And at some point, you're not even capable of knowing what's greedy and what's not, what extravagant and what isn't. Not because you're some intentionally greedy, monstrous person, because you've started to believe falsehood, to live in a lie, and to depart from the truth. One more, even more, if we're not uncomfortable yet, we'll just keep pressing on. Does that sound good? We've talked about money. Let's talk about sex. I was really sad to see this story. Um, this is actually a band I've, I've loved for a long time. If you, they, they were kind of like, they were like indie rock royalty maybe 10 years ago. Now they're kind of past their prime, which means they're perfect age for me. Um, and so Arcade Fire. And Arcade Fire was, was, um, was not only this kind of great indie rock band, they presented themselves from the beginning as the kind of socially conscious rockers. They were uh, out there advocating for environmental causes and for uh, poverty relief and um, for all sorts of social causes um, that, are, that were celebrated. They were seen as not the sort of you know, prior generation of you know, partying rock stars, but as someone that has a conscience. And just very recently, just a few weeks ago, this story came, came out, and it was broken, I think, by this, by this publication, by Pitchfork, about the, the lead singer, Wynne Butler, being accused of sexual misconduct by multiple women. And I cannot summarize the story adequately, but I would actually recommend reading it. Because what's interesting about it is Butler goes out of his way to try to get consent. There are some questionable instances where maybe he didn't. But it, again and again and again, he again is trying to think, I'm being a good guy. I'm doing the right thing. I respect women. I'm a feminist. But what he does and what these women all bring forth in this story is that even though he oftentimes verbally got consent, he used them. He wakes up late in the night, texts a woman, says, come to my house, has sex with them, and then moves on. They never hear from him again until suddenly he's interested. They have another encounter. He moves on. And there's a pattern again and again and again of him doing this with woman after woman after woman. And they all came forward and said, can we really give consent? Can we really give consent in the midst of this empower balance? And even if we verbally gave consent, does that mean that this isn't degrading and oppressive, that we aren't being used like tools? For your satisfaction? What this story brings out that is so fascinating to me is that I want you to imagine something. Imagine we were living 40 years ago. And imagine hearing about this story about a rock star going around and sleeping with women. We would have had, possibly, as a society, a very different 
reaction. Imagine, and I've seen movies like this. Imagine a movie about a young woman coming to her mother saying, Mom, I'm going to go see this new rock band. I'm gonna, and, and the band invited me backstage. And I'm going to go hang out with them and maybe we're going to go on tour with them. What would that story be about? I've seen these films. It would be about that woman's sexual liberation. I'm going out and I'm going to sleep around with this guy and it's going to be great and I'm living my dream. And who would be the baddie? The baddie would be the old religious mum saying, watch out for rock stars, dear. Don't go out and do that. Stay home. Repress your sexuality. That would be the story we tell. The point is, what is sex? It's a question about truth. It's a question about reality. If sex is just a transaction, if it's a meaningless means of giving, giving pleasure to another person, then maybe, in some instances, consent might be enough. But if sex, if that's not true, if that's not true to reality, if in reality sex is a sacred covenant, if it involves union and intimacy, then even if someone gives you verbal consent, if you use that, is an opportunity to get pleasure and move on, to treat them as an object there for your pleasure rather than a sacred image bearer of the infinite God. You've trampled upon them. You've trampled on their humanity and your own. That's why for Paul, the question is, what is true? What is real? And when you start denying that and living in falsehood, you can find yourselves doing things which you pretend don't hurt anyone and which leave a trail of bodies behind you. So this is God's wrath. God's wrath is, is in a weird way, God's wrath is identical to our modern individualistic view of freedom and salvation. God's wrath is him saying, you want to be whoever you want and do whatever you want. Do it. And the consequence of that, as Paul goes on to say, is this. It's hard to capture what's going on in the Greek in these words. Every one of these words starts with an A. They're a negation. So if someone is an atheist, that means they don't believe in God, theism, right? It's the negation of theism. Paul says the result of being given over is that you become without sense, without trust, without feeling, and without compassion. You become less and less able to see what is really true. You become less and less trustworthy and able to trust others. You become less and less full of feeling and compassion and sensitivity and kindness. kindness. You become more and more ruthless in seeking what you think you want, regardless of the consequences. So what is God to do? What is God to do when he sees the sort of world that we're making? A world that is not harmoniously and beautifully ordered, but a world where we are sinking further and further into a living death. Well, the first thing he does is express his wrath. 
That's why God's wrath is not contrary to his kindness and his goodness and his love. It is an expression of his heart for all things he has made. It is, it's him standing stride the world and watching the way we are abusing ourselves and one another and crying, no, stop, cease. Karl Barth put it this way. God's wrath is the protest pronounced always and everywhere against the course of the world. It's an expression of his desire that we would flourish and be whole. But he doesn't only do that. God doesn't only stand stride the world and yell stop by giving us the consequences of our actions. That word which I said rung again and again through this passage. He gave them over, he gave them over, he gave them over. The word is paradidomai. And it, it, it dominates almost to a strange degree, almost as if it's, it's, it's intentional. It dominates the end of every one of the stories of Jesus, of every gospel. The final days of Jesus' life hanging over the top is that word. He gave them over or he was given over. Judas in, the, in our translations, it says, Jesus says, look, the betrayer is coming. What it literally says is, the one who hands me over, he is coming. And then it says, G Judas handed Jesus over to the religious leaders. And then it says, the religious leaders handed Jesus over to Pilate. And then it says, Pilate handed Jesus over to be flogged. And then it says, all of them and the whole world handed Jesus over to be crucified. And later, it says that Christ so loved the world and the church that he handed himself over for us. God doesn't just stand, stride the world, yell, stop, and give us the consequences of our own actions. He, in the most literal way possible, takes all that we have made, all that we deserve, all that we have brought upon ourselves, and he hands himself over to us. So no matter who you are, no matter how far you've gone down that descent away from truth, he can offer you a way out. He can offer you grace. He can take what we have chosen for ourselves and pour it out upon himself so that he can offer to every one of us the goodness and grace and life that he would choose for you. And every time we come to this table, we basically hear of this reality. If you have been a part of any Christian church, you've heard these words hundreds of times before. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered, same word, handed over to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, the night he was handed over, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When we come to this table, God hands himself over to us again. What is offered to you is that same offering of one who took the consequences which every one of us deserved so that we could be freed and liberated and offered new life. Let's prepare our hearts to come to the table.